All right, all right, all right. How's everybody doing? Good. Happy Sunday to you. Happy Lent. Here we are, enjoying the season of Lent. We began a study series last week, and we said our agenda throughout this season of Lent is we're going to follow Jesus day by day by day through his final week in Jerusalem, the week that we now call Holy Week. And so we started out uh, last Sunday, and we looked at Sunday, the beginning of what we call Holy Week with Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem and quite a splash uh, he made there. So this week we're continuing that. Uh, and for those of you who want to follow along, maybe read ahead and get ahead of the class, we're, we're tracking as closely as we can with the Gospel of Mark uh, through his account of Jesus' final week there in Jerusalem. And we're doing that because Mark, among all the Gospel writers, seems to be paying close attention uh, to help his readers along with, with um, measuring time. He seems to be more careful to give us the day-by-day breaks uh, in the action, helping us keep our finger on the pulse of these events. And so we're calling this series Seven Days in the City of Truth. I like that title. To me, it sounds like a good classic rock album title. Seven Days in the City of Truth. You remember, remember when we used to buy records and it was an actual piece of vinyl in a, in a sleeve, right? Remember that? So I'm thinking, I'm thinking of this album cover, Seven Days in the City of Truth. And can't you just see the cover art, right? There's band members with long hair. They got faded bell-bottom blue jeans on. Paisley shirts with really wide collars. You put it on the turntable and they're screaming Les Paul guitars. Seven Days in the City of Truth. I like that title. Yeah, that's right. Bring it, bring it back. If you read the ancient prophet Zechariah, that's one of the titles that he gives to the city of Jerusalem. He refers to Jerusalem as the city of truth. And certainly during Holy Week, Jesus is bringing bucketfuls of truth to the city of Jerusalem. All right, so here we go. We're going to pick up Mark chapter 11. We're just going to read uh, day two, which is Monday of Holy Week. Here we go. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. And Mark is very helpful here to tell us, for it was was not the season for figs. So Jesus said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him. Because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. And if you do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will come to pass, it'll be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it'll be yours. And then finally, he says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. 
if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. And there you have it, day two, Monday of Holy Week. I had kind of a, I had a thought. (laughs) That's kind of a scary, I had a thought recently. Yay for you. No, maybe it was an epiphany. I don't know. You'll have to be the judge. Okay, so here here was the thought, here was the thought that I had. I spend a great deal of time thinking hard about my role as a teacher, right? Of course, of course I do. So virtually all the time, I am thinking and thinking and thinking like, what are the teachable, preachable principles and precepts that I need to convey to our church family? And certainly when we're doing a book of the Bible series, and I know in advance the passage that we'll be dealing with, same thing. What are the teachable, preachable principles and precepts from this passage of Scripture that I need to try to convey. This is almost a constant reality with me, like between my ears. But recently, I had this, this thought, and I think maybe it was a kind of an epiphany. You'll have to be the judge. But suddenly, like out of nowhere, it, it dawned on me that while I'm busy racking my brain trying to mine out principles and precepts and so on from, from these scriptures, they themselves, that is the scriptures themselves, most often are completely satisfied and content with simply telling the story. Think about that. How much material is there in Scripture where what we get is a story is told to us? Without without reaching for what are the ramifications, what are we supposed to pull out? It's just, here's the story. Certainly that's true with the Gospels, but much, much more within the Scripture as a whole. Obviously this is true of the Gospel of Mark. And so my thought was, What if I just take my cue from the scriptures themselves, and indeed, more specifically here, what if I just take my cue here from the Gospel of Mark and just try to tell the story? And so what I'm going to try to do in this study, not just today, but throughout this study, is I'm going to try to just tell the story. Because the presumption is, if the Spirit-inspired writers of Scripture were comfortable and confident just telling the story and providing the opportunity for the reader to enter into the story and let that entering into the story have its transformational Holy Spirit effect on our lives, then I think we're on solid ground to be comfortable with the same proposition, right? It's not that the story, it's not that the story in and of itself carries the transformational mustard. It's that the story carries the opportunity for us to enter into the story. And that entering into the story is where the Holy Spirit transformational mustard is, right, for our lives. And so what I'm going to try to do in this study series is tell the story. And and as I said last week, I'm going to try, particularly in this series, um, to pay as close attention as I can to the history and the cultural context, the background, uh, the context in which these events unfold. But besides that, I'm just going to try to tell the story. And really, really, if you think about it, that is another good way to summarize and wrap up together what the season of Lent is all about. See, this is a time of year when Christians are preparing for the great celebration of Resurrection Sunday, right? And, and, and the way that we prepare as followers of Jesus, the way that we prepare for the full and robust celebration of Easter is by reconnecting ourselves with the story of Jesus. 
reconnecting, reorienting, realigning ourselves, heart, soul, mind, and body with the person of Jesus and, of course, the passion of Jesus. So Lent is a time then when we are especially intentional about retuning our hearts and our minds to love what Jesus loves, to see how Jesus sees, and ultimately to walk as Jesus walks. So it's about alignment, alignment with the heart and agenda of Jesus. This is what the Bible calls faith, the faith of Jesus Christ, to take up the mind of Christ, to see how Jesus sees, to feel how Jesus feels, to love what Jesus loves, and ultimately to walk as Jesus walked. So that's my agenda. That's going to be my attempt. All right, so let's deal with it. Mark chapter 11 tells us a story about Tuesday. And let me just point out from a writing style standpoint, something that Mark does here in this passage as he tells us the story of Tuesday. Um, Mark does something that he does quite frequently throughout the gospel of Mark, and that is that he tells us a story within a story. Right? Like it's customary, and, and that's what we just read. Mark will f- frequently, he'll begin a story, and then before concluding that story, he'll tell us another story all the way, beginning, middle, and end. And then he'll return to the first story and complete that first story. So there's like a story inside of a story. Or they're like bookends, right? Like, like the left bookend is the intro to story number one, and then the row of books is story number two, and then the right-hand bookend right-hand book in would be the completion of story number one, or like a story sandwich, right? You got the, anyway, you get the idea. Okay, so a story within a story. Mark does this quite often. Now, what's the point of observing that? Well, it's, it's this. The key for us as readers is to understand that when Mark does this story sandwich trick, what he's inviting us to do is to understand that the two stories interpret one another, that they are connected. The story sandwich is really, it's one sandwich, Right? You've, got, you've got the inner story and the outer story, but it's one sandwich. They are meant to resonate against each other and to interpret one another. Right? So here in this example, we have the beginning of the story with the fig tree at or near Bethany. Right? That's the one piece of Wonder Bread. Then we got the turkey and the ham, which is the scene at the temple. And then we got the conclusion with the fig tree, which is the other piece of Wonder Bread on the other side of the sandwich. Right? So that's what's going on here. So let's begin where Mark begins with us, the fig tree, right? He tells us that Jesus is hungry. He sees this fig tree. He looks at it, but he finds no fruit on the tree, no figs. So he curses the tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And, and, and Mark tells us that it's not the season for figs. This is happening in the springtime. Maybe there's some leaves on the tree, but no, no figs. Mark knows that. All the disciples know that. Everybody knows that it's not the season for figs. And Jesus knows that it's not the season for figs, right? And yet, he follows through with this action. There's no figs on you. May no one ever eat. So how do we understand what's going on here? Well, if we just, if we just take it at face value, it looks kind of um, maybe hot-headed on Jesus' part, right? Like, is he just being... Is he just being um, like, well, you understand what I'm saying. Is he being petulant with this, with this fig tree? And I think we, we ultimately we have to answer no to that question. Instead, we have to come back 
to something more profound, and that is that this act on Jesus' part is intentional. This is an intentional moment. This is, a, this is actually a lived-out parable that Jesus is giving for his disciples and then, by extension, to us. He's inviting us to see something here. This is a symbolic act. It is a living parable. The fig tree is fruitless, and so Jesus curses the fig tree ultimately to its destruction, as we see as the story uh, winds up later. And so this is what's going on with the fig tree. And so it leaves us to ask the question, what then is going on here with the cursing of this fig tree? It's not the fig tree's fault that it doesn't have figs. It's only spring, right? And yet Jesus curses it as a living parable, as an acted out symbol. So where is this all going? It's a great question. And the answer, actually, I think you're going to see, is ginormous. Here we go. We'll read it again. Verse 15. After the fig tree incident, he says, and I'll read it again. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, uh, buying and selling uh, in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching, and he said, It's written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. Everybody, this is an intense scene, right? Maybe you've seen this moment portrayed in film. It's been portrayed lots of different ways. This story has certainly been interpreted in many different ways, but it's worth our time and attention this morning to just simply ask a question, what is going on in this scene? Well, first, a little bit of context. Remember, it's Passover time there in Jerusalem. And during Passover, the Jewish people from all over the region, the diaspora as it's called, they would have been traveling into Jerusalem, some from very far away, to observe this most important Jewish festival. Uh, And those observances, of course, included sacrifices. And so, in a nutshell, that tells you what you need to know about the mention of buying and selling and money changers and so on in the temple. Because think about it, whatever animal you plan to sacrifice, uh, it must be ritually suitable for sacrifice. That is perfect. It must be a perfect animal, whatever animal it might be. And so, if your plan was to travel from, for some distance with your perfectly suitable animal for sacrifice, and you had to travel some distance, maybe days, day after day after day, there's no guarantee that by the time you arrive in Jerusalem that your animal will still be ritually suitable for sacrifice, right? And so it was the custom of the Jewish people who were distributed throughout the region as they traveled into Jerusalem. They would travel without an animal, and they would purchase the animal for the sacrifice there in Jerusalem, indeed in the temple, essentially guaranteeing that the animal that they have for sacrifice is, in fact, suitable for sacrifice. And so this explains the presence of of those who are buying and selling in the temple, and it explains the presence of the money changers, right? Because if you were a Jewish person from somewhere in the diaspora and you travel from some, for some distance to come to Jerusalem, uh, it, the currency that you have on you would be, in, it would be a foreign currency. And so you would need to exchange your foreign currency into the local currency so that you could then purchase the 
ritually suitable animal for the sacrifice, right? So this whole thing, all, all the activity that's going on uh, is a part of the Passover observance for the Jewish people. And here's the thing, everybody. It is all perfectly legitimate. And Jesus' activity here is not against the Passover practices themselves. In fact, strictly speaking, Jesus' complaint and his demonstration that he's made in the temple, strictly speaking, as we're going to see this morning, his objection, his confrontation, his challenge is in fact not against anything that's going on inside the temple. To the contrary, when we listen closely to Jesus' words and we listen carefully, what we find and what we realize is that what Jesus is confronting is what's going on outside the temple, not what's going on inside the temple. Now, give me a chance to explain that, right? Okay, let's listen again to Jesus' words. Verse 17, listen to this. He was teaching and saying, is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Listen to this. But you have made it a den of robbers. Now, this is probably, we get the indication that Jesus probably said more than this. This is probably a sample of a sermonette given by Jesus there in the temple after he had brought all the activity to a halt. Or maybe this is the opening salvo uh, for a sermonette. But either way, Uh, we can be confident that Mark has given us what we need to know about what Jesus said here. So let's pay close attention. He gives us a single sentence, which is actually a double quotation of two different ancient Jewish prophets. In most English translations of the Bible, the first half of this, well, I guess it's two sentences, but it's one snippet given to us by Mark. Uh, In most English translations of the Bible, the first sentence is normally set off in quotations. Uh, My house should be called a house of prayer uh, for all the nations. And that normally is set off in quotations, giving us a strong visual cue that Jesus is quoting someone. And indeed, he is. This is a quotation from the prophet Isaiah. But unfortunately, uh, the second half of what Jesus says there is normally in most English translations of the Bible, it's normally not set off in quotations. But it's just the same true that the second half is also a quotation from an ancient Jewish prophet. And I think it's very unfortunate, this custom among English translators of the Bible. And I think we've been maybe even a little bit cheated by this omission on the part of the translators. And so today, we're going to focus in on the second half of this summary statement that Mark gives us from probably what was a little sermonette that Jesus gave in the temple. So we're going to pay close attention this morning to part two of this two-part double quotation that Jesus gives. It says, after driving out the buyers and sellers and overturning the money changers and after totally putting a freeze on all the activity, notice it says Jesus wouldn't let anybody carry anything around the temple. So it just puts a total freeze on all the activity. Stop, halt, everything. And let me say to you from two of our own prophets, My house should be called a house of prayer, and you have made this a den of robbers. It's quite an image, a den of robbers. He gets that from the prophet Jeremiah. And so this morning, just as last week, 
It's, it's virtually impossible to understand Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem unless and until you take into account the prophet Zechariah that we looked at last week. In the same way, it's just about impossible to understand Jesus' action here in the temple on Monday without taking into account uh, and appreciating the prophet Jeremiah. And so what we're going to do this morning now is back up and look at the source passage um, uh, where, this, where this image is drawn from in just a moment. But first, let me point out why I said that Jesus is not, strictly speaking, protesting the activity in the temple. Notice what he says. You have made it, the temple, a den of robbers. Can I just point out something? The robber's den is not where the robbers do their robbing. The robber's den is where the robbers go to hide and collect together after they do their robbing. Robbers don't rob in their den. Robbers rob outside their den, and they come into their den for hiding and collecting together for a sense of safety, right? That's what a robber's den is. And in fact, when you look at the Jesus source from the prophet Jeremiah, that's exactly what Jeremiah is saying. Everybody understand what we're saying? Everybody see that difference there? A den of robbers is not where robbers do their robbing. So Jesus is not saying, you guys are robbing here in the temple. No, he's saying, this is a den of robbers who rob outside the temple and come in here seeking safety, refuge, and the presumption of safety and refuge, I guess, ultimately, is how we should say it, okay? So now, let's go back to the source in Jeremiah. Now, when we get to Jeremiah, it's important to understand a little historically. Like, when you think of the prophet Jeremiah, you can think of um, a prophet whose ministry sort of straddled... Uh, really, I guess many would say the all-time darkest time in the history of, of the people of Israel. Jeremiah served in the decades leading up to the invasion of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, the fall of, of uh, Jerusalem, and the taking away uh, of the Israelite people into Babylonian capt captivity. And then Jeremiah continues to serve, at least in the early decades after the fall of Jerusalem. And so Jeremiah, it's the reason when you read uh, Jeremiah, he's going through lots of anguish and uh, there's lots of warning material and then there's comforting material after, after the, 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 over, the fall of Jerusalem and in the aftermath of the exile and all that, you get a lot of, of sort of a dogged sense of hope that God's going to uh, restore all this. And so Jeremiah, it's a very, just a wrenching uh, work of prophetic writing to read when you read Jeremiah. And so this passage is in Jeremiah chapter 7. This would be from the, from the decades before the fall of Jerusalem. So this is one of those warning passages uh, lead, that would lead up to eventually what would become the overthrow of Jerusalem. And this is where we pick up from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1. Listen to this. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house. Now this is the temple before the temple was destroyed. And proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, you that enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings and let me dwell with you in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly, if you're taking notes, you might want to circle that phrase, act justly, one with another. And if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, 
or shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your ancestors forever and ever. Here you are, trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are safe? Does everybody see why Jesus drew upon this passage? Only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You see what Jeremiah is saying? Like, like these are the realities of the society of Israel. Uh, injustice toward one another. Not looking after the, the alien, the orphan, and the widow. All of these, all of these uh, unjust living practices. And then you come walking in this place saying, this is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. And because we have the temple of the one true God, we are safe. Our identity is sure because we are observing these religious practices. Sanctimony. Ceremony. See? So we're safe. What is Jeremiah announcing here, everybody? What is his complaint? What is his beef? Indeed, what is God's beef with these people? Do not trust, he says, in these deceptive words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You see, everybody, Jeremiah is describing the people as a people who are living lives that are unjust toward one another. And then they turn and take a sort of religious solace in the fact that they are the people who have access to the temple of the one true God. As if that access and that unique identity as a people assures them of their legitimacy. But what was the real problem? Let's read it again right from the heart of that complaint. Verse 5. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings. If you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, the widow, or shed innocent blood, and if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I'll dwell with you in this place. So what's the problem here in a single word? Justice. Or in four words, the absence of justice is the real problem. See, Jeremiah's word of warning here, everybody, is equal parts simple and still surprising for us. Here's the simple reality. God wants his people to practice loving justice toward one another. And I say this is simple because like, of course, right? Of course, God wants humans to love one another, like, well, for sure. Um, and yet, I can say that this is still a surprising word. Because isn't it true that there are times when we, I think, reflexively assume that, in fact, what God really wants from us is worship or ritual or protocol or ceremony or the kinds of things that happen in a temple. 
There's something reflexive on the inside of us. It's like we all kind of have this, we all kind of have this inner religious bone in us. And no matter how much we hear the prophets rail about justice toward one another, looking after the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, the undocumented, whatever you want to call them in any society to give time, no matter how much the prophets rail about all that, still we assume, yeah, 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 yeah. But what God wants in the end is worship protocol. He wants ceremony. We kind of have that bone in our body. And so when we fall under this assumption, we can find ourselves split right down the center with one side honoring God in heart and mind and the other side of us actually dishonoring God by ignoring the least among us, the alien, the orphan, the widow. It is significant that these three groups continue to be among the most overlooked from that day and that place clear to this day in this place. But we need not imagine that this is an exclusive list. The real point of this three-part list that comes up again and again in the prophets, the point is that the privileged always tend to overlook the unprivileged. The haves always tend to overlook the have-nots. That is, until we get one of these much-needed wake-up calls from one of God's dear prophets. This is what Jeremiah was doing back roughly five centuries before Christ was born. And this is what Jesus was doing on that Monday of Holy Week in the temple. And so, in Jeremiah's day and in Jesus' day, and yes, in our day as well, there tends to be this unnoticed trance among religious folk that we fall into. And when we're in this religious trance, we can perceive ourselves as more or less devoted to God while more or less ignoring the least, the poor, the disadvantaged among us. And the prophets say again and again, your heavenly father will not have it. And that is what Jesus is saying in the temple. And you know, this message, by the way, as I said, it's not unique to Jeremiah. Jesus actually had lots of material from the ancient prophets to draw upon. He chose this from Jeremiah, but he had lots that he could have drawn on. There's one that's beautiful. You may be familiar with this phrase. It was made famous in more recent uh, American culture by one of our more recent prophets here in the United States. Amos chapter 5. He says, I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I'll not listen to the melody of your harps, verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. There's the same heart, the same set of eyes, the same perspective from yet another ancient prophet. Let justice roll down like waters. This is the heart of our God. And if our proposition is to see what Jesus sees and to love what Jesus loves and ultimately to walk 
like Jesus walks, everybody, we got to get this deep in our bones. And, and remember, I, can't, I don't even know if I can say it well enough, just to point out how surprisingly irreligious this notion is. Because again, our religious impulse is that, is that if we're going to make connection with God, we're going to need to do the ceremony. We're going to need to do the protocol. We're going to need to jump through the hoops, do all the religious gymnastics, right? Isn't that, isn't that the enterprise of what religion is all about? Going through all those gyrations in order to make that connection with God? I mean, that's like our religious impulse. In fact, I would say that is our religious insistence. We insist it has to be that way. And yet, when you open our eyes and when we open our ears, we hear the prophets of God saying over and over and over again, no, the way that you love the one true God is to love people. The way that you love the one true God more specifically is to love the underdog, to love the overlooked, to love the have-nots. That's how you love this God. That's how you love the one true God. And I want to say another word before we fast forward back to Jesus in the temple. And I don't have time to really say this as fully as I think it deserves. Maybe we'll come back to it another time. But let me just say that as a part of our, um, uh, <laughs> speaking of immigrants, as a part of our naturalization into the kingdom of God, living out our baptismal identity in Christ, if you want to say it that way, um, there are a number, of course, there are a number of transitions, metamorphoses that are required in our, sort of in our inner economy. And one of those changes is, I want to suggest, is our notion of justice. Because you see, at least in our culture, and perhaps this is true of other cultures around the world, I don't know, but I know my culture. In our culture, we have a certain notion of justice um, that, well, it's basically like this. Think about our our icon for justice in American culture, um, Lady Justice. And you can, you've seen her portrayed in any number of places. And she's got the scales in her hands. And what's the other significant feature of Lady Justice every time you see her portrayed? She's blindfolded. That's right. Thank you. A, a, a plus gold star right here. She's blindfolded. That's, our, that's kind of our iconic notion of justice, that justice is blind. And that's a metaphorical way of saying that we believe that justice, true justice, that's kind of like this abstract concept that we call justice, um, uh, is equally applied to all people, right? But the other, the other aspect of, of justice being blind is that we have it in our thinking that there could be such a thing as justice that is passive, so in other words, we can imagine a scenario, a scenario that is just because everyone has equal opportunity to create for themselves well-being. And because everyone has equal opportunity to create for themselves well-being, that therefore is a just scenario, right? Because what was applied equally to everybody in that scenario was nobody got in anybody's way. That's, we have that idea in our inherited perspective of justice. And I want you to know that that idea of justice um, has nothing to do whatsoever with the ancient prophetic notion of justice. In the heart of God, there's no such thing as justice that's passive. In the heart of God, there's no such thing as justice that's blind. In the heart of God, justice sees Justice sees every hurt, sees every wound, says every instance of every oppression. Justice is active. This is why Amos would say something. Let, listen to what he says. Let justice roll like a river. There's nothing passive about a river. 
A river invades, it pervades. Let righteousness roll like an unending stream. God's justice is active, being involved, touching the wounded, in, uh, uplifting the downtrodden. That's what God's justice is. And so as we approach this idea of justice, one thing that I think we've got to be constantly reminded of is that our very sense of justice is in need of baptism into the economy of God, into kingdom-style justice. Everybody tracking? All right, let's go back to the story, back to Jesus in the temple. I want to just ask, point out and ask this question. Jesus says, you have made the temple a den of robbers. It's worth asking the question, who precisely is Jesus talking to when he says, you have made this temple into a den of robbers? And without really deliberating too long about it, I want to suggest it's clear from the context that Jesus is actually talking to the, the religious leaders. He's talking to the chief priests and scribes, as Mark calls them. They were the religious aristocracy of the day. At that time, first century kind of um, Israel economy. Over, they, were, uh, 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 over, they were ruled by the Roman Empire. The chief priests served at the whim of Caesar, and they knew it. Uh, we know from, from the history of, of that time that the, the religious aristocracy then was therefore cushy with Rome, and they actually ruled at the whim of Rome basically on behalf of Rome. And Mark tells us flat out that after Jesus said what he said, notice what Mark says. There were two different responses in the temple space among the people who heard what Jesus said. There were two different responses. He said the leadership wanted to kill him. And the people were spellbound by what he said. Why is that? It's because they understood that what Jesus was saying was a stinging rebuke to the leadership, and to the common folk, it was a breath of fresh air, what Jesus said. See? And so that's how, that's the reason we say that Jesus was speaking to the leadership in this scene. And so when you back up then, what you see in this moment is that here in the temple on Monday, Jesus is doing what he most always does. He's bringing down the proud and the comfortable, and he's lifting up the lowly, the downtrodden, the overlooked. And the religious authorities understood full well what Jesus was doing and saying. And so as a result, they wanted to kill him. And see, we've got to remember as we read these stories and we endeavor to enter into these stories, we've got to remember, and I mean, this is not saying the obvious, but we got to remember that what Jesus did, particularly on Sunday and on Monday, it's going to continue as we see through the week, but particularly on Sunday and Monday, what Jesus did and said, these prophetic acts, they got him killed. What Jesus is doing is a real challenge, rebuke to the powers that be at every step along the way. He's challenging the powers that be for the sake of lifting up those who are being overlooked and stepped on by the status quo in the culture. Jesus is embodying justice. And his embodiment of justice got him killed. You know, Plato had written uh, some 
300 and something years before Jesus was born in the writings that we know of as the Republic, Plato wrote that if a just man, a truly just man ever appeared on the scene, that that just man would be killed. That's what Plato wrote 300 and something years before Jesus was ever born. And in Jesus, we see, of course, that Plato was right. A perfectly just man arrived on the scene. And what did we do? We killed him. Jesus is enacting justice. See, when we talk about the passion of Christ, several years ago, Mel Gibson made a movie called The Passion of the Christ. And he used that term in its sort of classic, um, maybe within, at least within historical church circles, the word passion really has two meanings. And in one sense, the word passion means suffering. So in that context, when Mel Gibson made the movie, The Passion of the Christ, he's, in that context, the word passion means the suffering of Christ. But it's important for us to remember the second meaning of the word passion. Passion, our com- maybe more our common usage of the word, mean a pa- your passion is what you care about, right? Passion are the things that you care about. And so I guess to say it in a way that might be confusing without that lead up, we need to understand that the passion of Christ is what led to the passion of Christ. Jesus living for what he's passionate about is what led to his suffering. Jesus lived for the things that he cared about. And we've given one example today. And his living for what he cared about, justice, etc., is what led to his suffering. And this, here on Monday in the temple, is an example of that par excellence. All right, here we go. Back to the fig tree, verse 20. In the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and if you don't doubt in your heart but believe what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So we're back to the fig tree now. This is the other part of the sandwich uh, and the sandwich story. And now we see that the fig tree has completely withered to its roots. It's completely dead. Okay, now pause right there. First, the fig tree has no fruit. Jesus curses it. Then the temple. Jesus temporarily shuts down everything in the temple. And then he speaks a word. Let's just say a word of judgment, rebuke. Because of what? Well... You could say it like this then, at least among the leadership, there is no fruit. That is the fruit of justice in the temple. And then we're back to the fig tree, and we see now that the fig tree is totally dead. And since we're on to what Mark is doing here, and we know that these sandwich stories are meant to be interpreted together, then in light of that observation, what does this mean? Well, here's what we could say then. What we could say is that what Mark is telling us is that with this act, Jesus has symbolically destroyed the temple. And of course, the temple would be physically destroyed only a few years after, in 70 AD. 
So the temple doesn't have the fruit that God requires, which is justice. And so Jesus shuts it down. He has symbolically destroyed it. And so now we have these words of simple faith in God. Have faith in God. Just simple faith in God. No religious song and dance. No temple gymnastics. Just simple faith in God. And with that, you could even say to this mountain, what mountain? Well, if you're anywhere near Jerusalem, the mountain you're talking about is the Temple Mount. You could even say to this mountain, be be picked up and thrown into the sea, just with simple faith, no protocol, no gymnastics, no ceremonial gyrations. God just wants your heart. That's the context for these statements. Your Heavenly Father wants you. He wants your heart. He wants your love. He wants your simple, unvarnished trust in him. That's the context for these remarks. Jesus is, he is, he is subverting all kinds, years of protocol. Because in the Jewish mentality, if you want to make contact with God, you do it in the temple. If you want to receive the blessing of God, you do it in the temple. And not just physically there, but you go through all the protocols. You go, that's, where, that's where you connect with God. Go through all that. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Actually, simple faith in God. That's what your heavenly father wants. He wants your heart. And then back once again to the theme of loving God by loving people. Jesus says, if you have anything against anybody, forgive. Just walk in forgiveness. Just walk in forgiveness as your heavenly father has forgiven you. That's it. Everybody tracking? Monday. That's Monday of Holy Week. Everybody got the idea? All right, let's pray. And then we're going to receive communion together. I want to invite the band and singers to come up if you would while we pray. Father, we